Welcome to the very first Pogue McGoal podcast. James Carew. I'm co-editor of Pogue McGoal website and magazine. We're launching this podcast to coincide with the release of the very latest issue of the magazine, Issue 6. If you're unfamiliar with Pogue McGoal, we are a website and magazine looking at football culture, opinion, design and feature writing from around the world and with very much an Irish twist. We showcase Ireland's football history and culture on the same level as we would any other nation at the same time as delving into the global stories that make this the game we all love. The brand new issue is available from pogmagol.bigcartel.com or check us out on social media at pogmagol. The magazine is over 60 pages focused on considered design and quality writing from writers, illustrators, graphic designers and photographers from across the globe. To give you an idea of the diverse content, Issue 6 includes football stories from locations such as Cuba, Croatia, Brazil, France, USA and North Korea and features stars ranging from Eric Cantona, Diego Maradona, Pavel Nedved and boxing phenomenon Katie Taylor. On today's episode we're going to delve deeper into one of those feature articles with the author of the piece and to help me I'm joined by my co-host today Joe Feeling. Joe is a contributor to the website but he's also a news editor based in London and as well as working for various sports publications and websites in the past he's also managed social media profiles for some top Premier League footballers. Welcome to Pogue McGoal Joe. Hello thank you very much that was a lovely introduction. And I'm delighted to say we are joined by Taylor Geel, a former print journalist who currently works in media relations and who is author of our magazine feature Training Day, how a safety exercise gone awry led to a bomb scare at Old Trafford. You're very welcome, Taylor. Hi, James. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, good. How are you guys? Well, good. Thanks for joining us on our first Pogba Gold podcast. Before we explore your fascinating article in more detail, Taylor, I thought I would start by asking you both about how you got into football or what or who introduced you to the game or what's your connection with the sport. So go to you first, Joe. Um, I suppose, I'd, well, I grew up in Newcastle, so football was sort of the only thing we, we did there. Just like, like you see in, um, in the old school black and white clips of people playing football down alleyways on cobbled streets with, with no shoes on. That was my life. <laughs> uh, and, and then I moved to, to near Leicester. So I moved to a proper town. And then I kind of gave up on football for about 10 years um, until all my friends started playing for proper teams. I was like, oh, I should probably get into this. And so I didn't support a team until I saw... Do you remember Mido? Yes. He was like a, quite a fat Egyptian footballer. Yeah, did he play for Spurs? Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he was on loan at Spurs from like 
Zemelech or something in Egypt. And I remember I saw him do a back heel on Match of the Day. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. So from then on, I was a Spurs fan. <laughs> that was your moment of when Pelé scored an escape to victory. Yours was Mido at White Hart Lane. Mido at White Hart Lane doing a back heel when he was offside that went wide. <laughs> and Taylor, how about you? Yeah, well, I feel like I've been playing football longer than I can remember. Um, I grew up in Bognor Regis on the south coast and there's not really a big football culture there. Like a lot of the a lot of the kids in my year group and in my classes were sort of Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans and Man United fans. I'm sure that's the same wherever you go. But uh, because we had no big sort of Premier League team, it was um, it was very much we watched the Premier League. Do you know what I mean? We watched the Premier League and we support those teams whether we whether we uh, have any affiliation to them or not. But I played football. I played for Feltham Colts, which is like a big institution in Bognor Regis. And uh, yeah, sort of, I was all right at football. And then um, I had a season ticket at Portsmouth for one year. That was the closest big team. Um, so I've always been a fan. Um, uh, my, da- my dad is a big football fan, but he, he sort of, he hated me ever wearing a football shirt because <laughs> he thought it looked thuggish. Um, which is a strange thing to think about him if you ever meet him. But um, yeah, so football was kind of a big part of my life, but I was more of a player than a, than a watcher of football because I didn't have any affiliation um, sort of locally. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my roots in football, really. It's funny that Joe said you kind of fall in and out of love with football and especially especially with the Premier League, but now maybe with, and you touch on it in your article with the pandemic and putting it into perspective and if there's no fans are there, which we might touch on later, but it somehow just sucks you back in, doesn't it? Whether it's like you see a piece of magic by a player, something just sucks you back in to, to keep you interested. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I had a blank period of football sort of while I was at university. But towards the end of my university days, the Premier League was so good and the Champions League was so good for sort of three or four seasons in a row that, you know, I rarely go a weekend now without at least watching one game and, you know, certainly keeping an eye on the scores in Europe as well. But yeah, you're right, it does fade in and out. And I think maybe maybe given the pandemic, we're on a, on a waning period at the moment. Yeah, I, I think my university experience is sort of the other way around is... Um, because I went to university in Chester and I didn't know anyone when I went there. And I think just like in football, it's, it's an automatic point of connection with people. Like for, for people you don't know, you can always just say, oh, did you watch the match last night? And you're already into a conversation. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I, when I was about 10, I gave up playing and don't judge me, but I went and played rugby for a season or two. But I came back, I came back to football. Very good evening to you. The last day of the Premier League football season was thrown into chaos this afternoon when tens of thousands of fans had to be evacuated from Manchester United's Old Trafford Stadium. It's been a dramatic afternoon here at Old Trafford. 20 minutes before the scheduled kickoff, fans started to be evacuated from two of the stands. Evacuation is underway, hence we are outside here in the television compound. When you're leaving the throne and you ask the security guard, like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we don't know, just wait outside. It kind of, you know, kind of put us in a panic. The stewards actually ran at us 
and said, right, evacuate, evacuate. The bomb disposal team who carried out a controlled explosion. People started getting annoyed and started complaining and I think that communication here isn't good enough for the fans. If you're going to be like this, you might as well not have any supporters. So let's jump into your article, Taylor. It's a brilliant piece. And I vaguely remembered the bomb scare at Old Trafford, but you've really brought it to life. So kind of open it up to yourself to to tell us the story, but also the fact that you were a young journalist working on the story at the time. Yeah, that's right. So the story comes from the summer of 2016 and you're probably similar to a lot of people in that you have a vague recollection of this story happening at the time. But it was sort of front page tabloid news for, you know, two or three days. The essential story is um, there was a bomb scare at Manchester United on the final day of the 2015-16 season where Man United were hosting Bournemouth and um, there was a bomb scare and they had to evacuate the whole stadium. You know, 65,000 people or whatever it was, uh, just, you know, within an hour before kickoff were told to leave. You know, lots of people obviously very frightened, but then it turned out that this, this bomb they'd found was a dummy device that had been left there four days before and, you know, not found in the lead up to this game. So that's the essential story. Um, but there's a, there's a lot more to the article than, than just that, um, as you know. But um, that's, the, that's the bare bones of it. Yeah, there was a lot less Denzel Washington than I expected when I read the title Training <laughs> Day. Which I, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just something that I picked up on. And you, you made the point in kind of introducing it about, I think you quoted Jurgen Klopp at the start of lockdown this year and uh, the pandemic, I think Klopp said something like, football is the most important of the least important things. So that like football has been put in perspective now when we're stuck at home and we can't go to the games. But it was football was put in a perspective in a different manner with this incident. Yeah, that's right. So it, it feels strange to look back on the magnitude of that day now given that all football has been cancelled this year you know for that one match to be cancelled was front page news and the guy responsible for leaving that bomb there was you know um, surprised on the Monday morning by a horde of journalists one of which was me Um, and yeah I I kind of find the contrast between football disappearing in that moment and the reaction to it, and then football disappearing this year and our reaction to it, you know, then it really felt like the most important thing. You know, as I say, it was on the front pages and it was huge news. But it, I think that that shows how good those days were in 2016, that something like the withdrawal of football could just dominate our lives. When this year we've seen a kind of universal withdrawal of football and it's not the biggest story. And for this episode, you went and spoke to Chris again. But maybe you might start with you were one of those journalists who uh, spoke to him at the time. And this was you were kind of starting out in the trade. Yeah, so I'll start with the, the 2016 meeting. So you're right, I was, a, I was a young journalist. I was kind of six months into my first sort of national agency news reporter job. And 
I wouldn't know what I'd be doing until sort of eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, before I left my home on that Monday morning after this football had been cancelled the, the previous day, I got a call from my news desk giving me an address and telling me to go to this guy's house, Chris Reed's house. He lived kind of in Kent somewhere, big in Hill, I think. And um, yeah, so they said, go to his house. We've got the name of this security expert who's left this bomb in Old Trafford. Go and have a chat with him, see what he's got to say. So we turned up. I was one of the first ones there, but there, there was a big presence there. And the presence grew throughout the day. There were probably, you know, a dozen reporters and crews there throughout the day some of them live broadcasting some newspaper journalists like me some other sort of radio journalists there was a real mix it's not often you get a story like that where there's there's that many people in one location and normally when you do these stories you're confronted by somebody who is either sort of aggressive to you you know there's very often an f off for the, for the journalists turning up at their houses um, there's very often a total shutdown, like slam the door in your face. No, I'm not talking to you. Please, everyone go away. Um, and then very often you'll just get lies. You know, people will say um, total untruths about the story. Had nothing to do with it. Don't know what you're talking about. That sort of thing. But this guy, Chris Reed, who'd left this bomb at Old Trafford a few days earlier and had watched Old Trafford be evacuated on the Sunday, was just... He, was, he just put his hands up and said... Yep, this is totally my fault, not blaming anyone else. I'm sorry for the fear that I've caused everyone and for the inconvenience. And this was a bit of a shock to us reporters because he wasn't just completely open, but he invited us into his kitchen to tell us this. So it was a very, it was a very strange day. I think as well, uh, something that's worth noting is that the Paris attacks had only happened like six or seven months before, where, they, where the terrorists attacked the... Was it the, the Stade de France? I think it was, was one of the, the venues they attacked. So this sort of terrorism in large venues or the, the potential to attack large venues was a much like, more potent threat than it feels now. Like, people were genuinely worried about this. So even when the, the fake bomb was, was found, I think the, it kind of just scared people a lot because there was, they, they were just expecting this kind of thing to happen at some point. So fair play to him for, for owning up to that because... I don't know, it was just a, a weird heightened tension around terrorism at the time. So I, I think in in some respects he kind of had to, like he didn't really have any other recourse there, but it's still a still a brave thing to do in the in the moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I kind of think it was a it was a brave thing for him to do. And you say that he couldn't have really done anything else, but we we expected him to just say, I'm not talking to you until I've spoken to Old Trafford, until I've got my you know, pre-prepared, statement prepared and all that sort of stuff. We didn't expect anything from him. But he just went, yep, yeah, come in. Here's what I've got to say. I'm really sorry this happened. It's all, it's all on me. Um, and it was, it was amazing. Because I, I, think, I think that's what, like, if, if this situation had happened to me, that's what I'd like to think that I would do, that I'd be able to stick, put my hands up and go, right, I'm going to own this situation. I was at fault. But then in the moment, I'd probably be doing anything possible to just keep my curtains shut and hope it all blows over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your piece also um, brings in what this meant for the city of Manchester. And obviously I grew up in Ireland and we grew up in the IRA bombing campaigns and all that kind of thing. But you guys growing up in the UK, like this this was a bomb, the IRA had planted a bomb in the centre of Manchester. 
And then with the attack at the Ariana Grande concert coming not long after. So this wasn't necessarily new for Manchester. So and that's why it provoked a reaction. Yeah. And I think this is one of the interesting things about it, because you're right. It was Manchester and Manchester almost 20 years earlier to the day had had a huge bomb explode outside an M&S planted by the IRA. Um, so, so yeah, they, they did have a, a, a sort of relationship with bombs like this, and, and that might have explained the, the haste with which they evacuated the stadium. Because I spoke to Chris yesterday. He, um, he didn't get back to me in time for the article, but I spoke to him ahead of this podcast. And uh, he, he, he's quite frustrated at how quickly... The, the whole stadium was evacuated because he does lots of these training exercises. He's got quite an amazing CV. He's worked all around the world um, trying to keep people safe. And he, he says that, you know, these training exercises happen all the time and it's not as uncommon as you might think for these dummy devices to be left in places like this. And when they're found, more often than not, they are just a forgotten dummy device. And this one that was found in Old Trafford, you know, an hour before kickoff, had his mobile number and company name written on the back. And, you know, he was talking to me about the, uh, the five C's, he called them, of, uh, you know, when you find a device. And the first one is confirm, where you confirm that what you found is genuine. Is this a vi- viable device? You know, is, is there any other possible explanation for this device? did we have a training session here recently? You know, and he, he says that they, they failed at the first C and, you know, caused him and him a lot of embarrassment and the, and the club a massive inconvenience. I was thinking about this because there was a sticker on the device saying this was a training device. But then I was thinking if it was to happen, you might not necessarily trust that. But now you're saying Chris's mobile phone was on it. So why not give the guy a call who could tell you it was a mistake? We had a training exercise a couple of days before. The whole thing could have been sorted within minutes. Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly his frustration. I mean, he he's quick to point out that the the evacuation was done incredibly safely and you know they did an amazing job but it shouldn't have got that far because you're right it did have his company name and his mobile number on the back and one of the first questions security teams should be asking when a device is found is did we have training here recently does the name on the back of this device match the name of the training company does the mobile number match up you know if any of the answers to that those questions are yes then you should probably hold back evacuating the stadium but there you go, it happened. Yeah, you, you've also got to wonder as well how well trained these people are because the, the people who not necessarily were leading the evacuation but the people who came into the stadium and saw this, this device, would they have just been like, um, like day staff, just stewards? Well, I think it's, it's a security firm that's employed by Old Trafford to run these events, uh, sorry, sorry, run these exercises and do the security on the day. And so Chris was training some of these in the run-up to this game with Bournemouth. And uh, on the Sunday, he, you know, he, he, he admits that he's more of a rugby man, so he wasn't paying much attention to the football, but he saw on the news that Old Trafford was on the news. And he thought, oh, what's that about? I was there a couple of days ago. Why is that on the news? And then he saw the people he'd been training 
uh, sort of in their security gear and he could see that there was a big evacuation procedure happening and he phoned one of the people he saw on screen, he phoned them up and said, what's going on? And they said, well, they found a device in such and such area of the stadium and he thought, oh, well, that's great because I was in a completely different end of the stadium so it's nothing to do with me, I'll let you crack on with it. And then it turned out that this was just a miscommunication and that it, you know, it, it was actually his device. From the, the security team's perspective, it must have been such an, such an unusual like, 48 hours because they'd gone through this training scenario. They'd been taught exactly the steps to take and then immediately they were put in the situation where they could take these steps. So at the forefront of their mind was just been like, um, we know exactly what to do, let's just go ahead and do it. Before thinking of... The, the, the potential that it couldn't be uh, an actual bomb. They were like, right, we're going to carry it out to the letter, just like we were taught. And maybe they were a little bit too eager to, to, to go about things the right way. They forgot about the, the very basics. And even in the run-up to the, to the match, you know, he said that they should have swept the stadium. You know, this, this particular device, this dummy device that was left, was sort of... It was shaped like a small bit of pipe with a mobile phone duct-taped to it and a few sort of ominous looking wires I write in the piece. Um, so it looked the real deal and it was just hung on a hook on the back of a, a cubicle door in the toilet. So when you open the cubicle door, you wouldn't have seen it because it was hung on the back of the door. And it w- you would only have seen it if you kind of, you know, sat on the loo and shut the door behind you. <laughs> but they obviously didn't do that. In your kind of notes for the piece, Taylor, you also said like, Lots of the journalists who, would, who went to see Chris also commented about how humble and apologetic he was. Um, from what you remember, what was the coverage like? Was it very scathing of, of Chris at the time? Was he blamed solely? He was blamed solely. Um, and I think that's a result of him immediately putting his hands up when he was confronted and saying, yes, this was on me. But it wasn't in a, it wasn't in a malicious way, really. It was just like, oh, this is the the numpty who left the device. It was kind of, it was kind of tongue tongue in cheek. He wasn't vilified, um, and I, I remember actually there was a, I think it was the Daily Mirror on the Tuesday, so the day after we'd all hounded him, there was a picture of Chris on the front page holding another version of this dummy device, and he's it's you know it's it's a great front page because it just it it shows shows the whole story and one front page and uh, it just shows his humility and willingness to accept the full responsibility of it. From a photography point of view, from a sort of tabloid journalist point of view, that's, that's a real piece of gold, that is getting him stand there with the device. From Chris's point of view, it's great because as soon as the, the game was then replayed, it's the, the story's kind of dead, isn't it? There's no, there's no additional following up, no one's there to blame him. Like, that, the whole story's been played out. So he was out of the news cycle like, within a few days. Well, I asked him about that, and I do reference this in my piece about how intense those few days must have been. And I said to Chris, I spoke to him earlier on today, and I said, what were the repercussions of that for you, sort of professionally and personally, and how did it affect you? And he he said it died down within a couple of days. It was all gone. Professionally, he lost very little work. You know, clients that have trusted him for years, some decades, continue to work with him because they trust him, and he's done a good job in the past, and this they appreciate that this was just human error. Um, but the story just faded. He, had, um, he tells me that he had colleagues and, you know, 
other companies and people that he worked with phoning him up after that event and just sort of offering their support, really. And uh, he says he was quite humbled by the reaction of the industry to this, this mistake. And they appreciated that this was just one blot on the CV of an otherwise decorated security expert. And kind of speaking to him a number of years on, what, what are his thoughts? He, he looks back on it with uh, a bit of frustration. He thinks the, you know, the stadium was obviously evacuated too quickly and he, he never got to sort of debrief with Old Trafford. He was expecting some contact with them and you know, that, that didn't happen. Um, but he looks back on it as a, as a strange time and it, and it was a strange time. I mean, he, he was propelled from you know, kind one-man band security expert you know, with a history in the police, to the front pages of the tabloids. So uh, it's, uh, he still gets ribbed about it by, you know, people that he works with. I think the important point you made is that his job was actually to keep people safe. So there was, maybe he was kind of painted at the time of someone who created a dangerous situation, when in fact it, his job is to help people and keep them safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And his quotes, he did, he did eventually write a statement that he wanted to sort of wanted us to lead on in our coverage of him and he did say all I can say is that what I do to try and ensure the safety of the public at sporting and other events in an operational role has been my life's work and I continue to do it and I just think that is a a fantastic reaction just dust yourself off I'll carry on doing what I do what what I do and yeah, I think it's great. I was going to say, if anything, this this event now, in in retrospect, he's probably altered his approach to how he works with these big companies. To 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 maybe say communication is is key as well. I like just just to double down on that, saying if you do think there's there's the potential that it could be a left device similar to the Old Trafford incident, give me give me a call. Well, he says that subsequent conversations with others in the industry have revealed to him that lots of these big stadia, lots of these big complexes have checked their policies following the Old Trafford fake bomb scare to ensure that they aren't as hasty as the security team was that day. And that if it is a training device, then the policies and the procedures allow them to recognise it as a training device before they evacuate, you know, tens of thousands of people. And that is, that is a, a professional positive that has come out of that whole fiasco. It's a great article, Taylor. We're really pleased that it's in the magazine. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated. I, I know I've shown you the illustration and Joe has seen it, actually by my own brother, who's, a, who's an artist based in Ireland. So yeah, it's fantastic. We urge our listeners to check out the latest issue, issue six of Pogma Gold magazine. But before we finish, we touched on it at the start about football in these strange times. What have you learned about your relationship with football since lockdown and since there are no fans in stadiums. Joe? I, I don't know. I, st- I still love football, but I think I am currently in a situation where I feel quite overwhelmed by how much there is. Um, and, and I don't know why that is. I think maybe it's because previously when I was going to work and then coming back, it was something to, to, to enjoy of an evening was to watch a game of football and then just chill out and go to bed. But now the whole of my day just feels like one continuous sitting in my bedroom. And then I was like, oh, and now I've got to do a football match as well. That's another hour and a half. And it's sort of 
like it's feeling like an additional job now. Even though it's not, I'm not, no one's forcing me to do it, but I sort of feel obliged to do it because then the next day I'll listen to podcasts about the games. I'm like, I need some context. And it just, I, I don't know. I, I still love it, but I, I, feel, I feel like it's, uh, it's taken its toll ever so slightly. And also because there hasn't been a break, really. There wasn't really a summer break. It just feels like one endless slog, but Tottenham are doing well, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm glad there's so much football at the moment. I'm enjoying the fact that it's absolutely relentless. So I don't share Joe's pessimism on the whole ordeal. Um, but, what, but one thing I have kind of felt a bit uncomfortable about is, is the, the amount of like these clubs that are just you know, losing people or you know, not paying mascots. And then still at the same time, you know there's all this money sloshing around. That's, that's, that's a sort of dark side of the game that... Maybe some of us knew was there, but hopes would never manifest itself in this way. That's sort of disheartening to see. Um, and I'm quite fearful for a lot of the clubs in sort of lower professional football as well. I think we're not quite prepared for the scale of the devastation that's coming to a lot of the football league. Yeah. Um, I, I think as well, Taylor, on what you just said there, it's it's probably about time that we go to James, who's an Arsenal fan, about losing Gunnosaurus and then two days later buying Thomas Partey for 45 million. Yeah, and Mesut Ozil was someone who said he would pay the wages of the mascot and the Mesut Ozil situation is a whole different thing at Arsenal with earning so much money and the manager not playing him. So, yeah, there's it's the ugly side of the Premier League, really. I, I think for myself, I still will watch games or have them on in the background. I can go a weekend and watch four games on a Saturday, two or three games on a Sunday. But I think the novelty of the pumped-in noises and not having fans has really worn off. I think Liverpool winning the league and taking possession of the trophy in an empty stadium was actually uh, quite sad to watch. Yeah. Even games then, like, for example, Ireland had a playoff to go to the Euros... The sense of tension and hype around it was largely missing. And they've missed out on the Euros, but what kind of Euros will we have next summer anyway? So that's kind of... I will still watch it, but I'm I'm kind of caught in the malaise of it. Yeah, I'm feeling that now. That's, that's another thing I think about Tottenham games. I, I'm sad we, when we lose a game. I'll go, oh, well... Maybe we'll win one of the other 95 tournaments that we're in next week. (laughs) A loss doesn't feel like a loss anymore. It just feels like a stopgap until the next game. And on that cheery note, I will bring the very first Pokemon Gold podcast to an end. Uh, It was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. So thank you to yourself, Joe and Taylor. Yeah, thanks, James. It was a pleasure. Cheers, Taylor. It was great. And that's it for our very first episode. We hope to bring you more of these as we are joined by guests who've contributed stories, artwork, photography and more to both the magazine and website. Don't forget, you can now order issue 6 of the Pogmagold magazine right now from pogmagold.bigcartel.com. Support independent publishing and pick up a copy. You can also get in touch on hello at pogmagold.com. Join us next time on the Pogmagold podcast.